Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Adapia Dorico and Daniel Coca. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today we're speaking with Todd Friedenberg. Todd is president and a principal of Q10 Vista Commercial Mortgage Group, and he has over 30 years of commercial real estate experience in debt and equity financing, brokerage, and valuation consulting. Todd was previously a vice president with GE Commercial Finance and Column Financial of Credit Suisse and served as a commercial mortgage banker since 1990 with various firms in Nashville. He has originated more than a billion dollars of debt and equity over his career. Today, amongst other things, Todd's involved with several Nashville area nonprofit organizations and currently serves as board chairman of Samaritan Recovery Community. And he is a close advisor to Alpha Investing, serving as our VP of commercial real estate. We talk with Todd about the current state of the debt markets and how the pandemic is affecting retail, hotel, office, and multifamily assets, covering the ways that lenders are adjusting underwriting and working with existing borrowers, from big box retailers who refuse to pay rent to multifamily owners who are managing uncertain rent rolls. We also speak about what could be on the horizon should the pandemic timeline extend into a long-term crisis as well as covering some creative solutions for some assets and asset classes that will be irrevocably changed by this health crisis. On a daily basis, you're working with all kinds of lenders. I mean, that is the fundamental nature of what you do, right? Correct. Okay. Um, So on a daily basis today, (laughs) maybe compared to even, you know, six or eight weeks ago, like what is going on? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, even if I compare today versus yesterday, that's how quickly things are changing. And so I can give you some specific examples, but I live predominantly in the life insurance company arena of lending. And so I'm dealing probably 80% of the lenders that I'm dealing with are life companies that are originating, you know, that I'm originating commercial mortgages for their portfolios. And they are under a completely different set of guidelines and requirements than a bank would be, for example. So the insurance companies are regulated by individual state. Uh, but but the NAIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, um, is kind of their guiding entity. And we're still waiting for the NAIC to formally put out a set of guidelines that insurance companies can abide by in terms of modifying their loans. 
And the way it stands now is if a borrower makes a request for forbearance, meaning stop payments for you know one to three months or interest only payments, the life company has to, they're required to set aside reserve money, actual cash dollars against their, their balance sheet to reserve against losses, potential losses on that loan. And so that's been the big issue because we don't know what the NIC is going to do in terms of alleviating some of that risk-based reserve capital that the life companies are required to set aside. Um, there's been some guidelines and suggestions to say anything short-term, we're going to look you know, kind of favorably upon and not require that. But there's been, again, no formal document saying that. So what we're seeing now, and I maybe give you some specific examples. I have a client that owns a large strip shopping center with big box tenants, um, Bed Bath & Beyond, TJ Maxx, Staples, uh, a sporting goods store, along with several restaurants, and then some local mom and pop types shops. The center's completely closed. Uh, in terms, every store is closed. Um, there, there's really no essential businesses operating out of these, out of the center. So they're, they're required to be closed. So there's no income at all at the property. And the large tenants, the big box tenants, Bed Bath & Beyond, TJ Maxx, they're all on a nationwide basis taking the attitude of we're just not paying rent. And whether it falls under some of them are saying, hey, the lease requires the property to be open and operating and it's not, so we don't have to pay rent. Or they're looking to specific clauses in the lease like force majeure, which I don't want to get too much into that, but um, that allows under certain cir circumstances the tenant to not abide by all of the lease terms. So it's put the owners in a, in a real crunch. So they're coming back to the lender to ask for some relief. And so I'm getting a lot of requests for a certain number of months of interest only payments or a certain number of months of forbearance, meaning we, we can't make a payment for three months until these tenants reopen and start paying. And so from the life company side, they're pushing back a little bit saying, you know, look, uh, on this one particular property, it's, it's like a 40% loan to value. This property was cash flowing millions while it was open. Now it's cash flowing nothing, but the life companies are taking a little different approach because they don't have the flexibility that a bank would have for the federal government, giving them the ability to work some of these deals out without really a cost to the bank. So we're kind of caught in the middle of all that, trying to navigate those territories. And, and, and honestly, I probably have in our servicing portfolio really only a handful of loans so far where the borrower has asked for some help, but I know on a, on a nationwide basis, that number is, is growing. Um, and so I think we're fortunate where we're located in Nashville and in the, in the Southeast. And I'm not sure why that is. I think a lot of our loans are structured where they're not highly leveraged loans. So it's, it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better, but I don't foresee, you know, a large amount of foreclosures, uh, especially, you know, at least not on the, life insurance company side. So I think that's the key question, right? You know, what people are wondering, will there be foreclosures given 
you know, this dynamic, right? And, and if we move beyond life companies and, and the Southeast and just talk about this more broadly, how do you personally feel about the situation? Is it likely that, you know, a bank says, well, you know, we underwrite risk and even though we didn't account for this pandemic, it's still, you know, our right as the first lien lender on, um, you know, one of these properties to foreclose uh, if we want to. You know, there are obviously practical challenges that come with that. You know, are we going to kick out all of these big box retailers and find a new ones in the current environment? Absolutely not, right? And so there's a bit of a practical discussion to this as well, as opposed to just what are your rights per the, the legal agreement that is a lease? And so, yeah, we'd just like to get here some of uh, your thoughts on, on that dynamic and how you think this will actually play out in practice. Well, that's a great question. I think that there's a lot of ways to break that down. I think one, if we're specifically talking about, let's talk about some, some classes of properties. So retail and, and hotels are probably the two hardest hit by this pandemic and store closures. So from the retail standpoint, what's interesting about this is retail in general has, has not been a favored product just because of Amazon and you know, the internet and just in general, these big box retailers, I think this, this was probably coming down the pipe, whether it was a year from now or five years from now. So this event really accelerated that. So I think the retail side of, of commercial real estate, that landscape is going to really change uh, going forward. And I'm not really sure who's in the driver's seat. I think we're going to find in a lot of cases, the tenants are going to be in the driver's seat here uh, because they've and really squeeze the landlord. But I think I, I have a couple of borrowers that told me when we get through this, we're, we're, we don't want to work with these big box retailers anymore because of the way they've treated us. And so we're going to try to retenant this. We're not going to renew their lease. We're not going to. So I think that group is probably in the minority. Um, but in terms of foreclosures, on the life company side, I don't think we're going to see a lot of that. I think that these deals will get worked out and restructured. It's interest. What's really interesting, the the paradox here is, in the in the 2009 financial crisis, banks were brutal on their borrowers uh, because of the credit crunch and and values, real, real concerns about values, and and banks would go out. They were getting properties reappraised, and the property was appraising below where it would provide the required debt service coverage um, or other metrics, they would they were making the borrower pay down the loan amount by that difference. And so they were really squeezing the borrowers. This time around, they've got the backing of the federal government right from the get-go. And uh, and loans today look a whole lot different, bank loans, than they did 10 years ago. They're not as highly leveraged. Um, they're structured a little differently. And and bank loans, most of them have recourse. So they've got a little more flexibility. And so I don't think we're going to see a ton of that aside from some retail properties and hotel properties. Um, I'm not sure how we get around certainly the hotel properties. I mean, look, we've got all these hotels that are basically closed and when will, nobody knows when they're going to reopen. And even if they reopen in a couple months, I don't think they're going to fill up for a while because we're not seeing we're not going to see conferences come right back and we're not going to see travel as much. And so it could be, you know, 2021 till we really get back to a normal environment from a standpoint of hotels and um, 
not so sure what retail looks like. So multifamily properties, uh, again, I think you've got some backing from uh, the government on both sides, the, the tenants that are receiving some money, if they applied for it, that a lot of that money's running out, but stimulus checks, things like that. And then on the landlord side, uh, same thing. If they had a, a government loan like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, they've got some relief on those loan uh, requirements and, and some forbearance relief. So I think it's going to be really a few months before we really know, before I can answer that question. If you ask me that question in three months, I think my answer is going to be a lot different depending on kind of what we see over the next three months. So, you know, I don't, I don't really know, Dan, it's, I'm I'm hearing a lot of different things and I've never, I've been through a lot of downturns. Uh, I've been in this business for 30, 33 years. And usually you have a majority kind of, idea of which way this is heading. I, I'm hearing so many different things right now that it's really anybody's guess as to where we go from here. Um, and, and we're really not going to know until things get going again. Yeah, I was reading somewhere and of course everybody's got best guesses and there's articles about everything, but that there was an expectation that travel wouldn't really normalize or really pick up for about 30 months was the last thing that I saw. And I think it was specifically related to airlines, potentially international travel. There might be some, uh, some expectation of local travel, but to your point about hotels um, and the travel industry in general, I was also thinking about when it, speaking about hotels, I'm in LA, as you know, and I saw that in San Francisco, there was an ordinance passed for the city to rent 7,000 hotel rooms for the homeless population, which I thought was really interesting that it was, and it was unanimously voted, and I'm, I can't remember what housing board voted this in for the homeless population. And then we've seen hotel uh, hotels maybe also being used for different kinds of shelter in place for people who are ill. There's like, there's a lot of different options for that. Of course, that varies across the country. There's been suggestions that student housing dorms be used for spare hospital beds. I mean, there's got to be some creative solutions to um, these issues, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that we will see a lot of creative sort of adaptive, short-term adaptive reuses of uh, hotel properties or for a lot of different, you know, I, I love that idea about sheltering the homeless and figuring out how to pay, you know, compensate the hotel owner so they can continue to make their loan payments. So, you know, it, it's really a pretty huge trickle down effect here because um, there's so many different, you know, parties involved, you know, lender to, to the borrower. Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca.
Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Today, we're speaking with Todd Friedenberg. Todd is president and a principal of Q10 Vista Commercial Mortgage Group, and he has over 30 years of commercial real estate experience in debt and equity financing, brokerage, and valuation consulting. Todd was previously a vice president with GE Commercial Finance and Column Financial of Credit Suisse and served as a commercial mortgage banker since 1990 with various firms in Nashville. He has originated more than a billion dollars of debt and equity over his career. Today, amongst other things, Todd's involved with several Nashville area nonprofit organizations and currently serves as board chairman of Samaritan Recovery Community, and he is a close advisor to Alpha Investing, serving as our VP of commercial real estate. We talk with Todd about the current state of the debt markets and how the pandemic is affecting retail, hotel, office, and multifamily assets, covering the ways that lenders are adjusting underwriting and working with existing borrowers, from big box retailers who refuse to pay rent to multifamily owners who are managing uncertain rent rolls. We also speak about what could be on the horizon should the pandemic timeline extend into a long-term crisis as well as covering some creative solutions for some assets and asset classes that will be irrevocably changed by this health crisis. On a daily basis, you're working with all kinds of lenders. I mean, that is the fundamental nature of what you do, right? Correct. Okay. Um, So on a daily basis today, (laughs) maybe compared to even, you know, six or eight weeks ago, like what is going on? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, even if I compare today versus yesterday, that's how quickly things are changing. And so I can give you some specific examples, but I live predominantly in the life insurance company arena of lending. And so I'm dealing probably 80% of the lenders that I'm dealing with are life companies that are originating, you know, that I'm originating commercial mortgages for their portfolios. And they are under a completely different set of guidelines and requirements than a bank would be, for example. So the insurance companies are regulated by individual state uh, but but the NAIC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, um, is kind of their guiding entity. And we're still waiting for the NAIC to formally put out a set of guidelines that insurance companies can abide by in terms of modifying their loans. And the way it stands now is if a borrower makes a request for forbearance, meaning stop payments for you know one to three months or interest only payments the life company has to they're required to set aside reserve money actual cash dollars against their their balance sheet to reserve against losses potential losses on that loan and so that's been the big issue because we don't know what the NIC is going to do in terms of alleviating some of that risk-based reserve capital that the life companies are required to set aside. Um, there's been some guidelines and suggestions to say anything short-term, we're going to look, you know, 
kind of favorably upon and not require that. But there's been, again, no formal document saying that. So what we're seeing now, and, and I maybe give you some specific examples, I have a client that owns a large strip shopping center with big box tenants, um, Bed Bath & Beyond, TJ Maxx, Staples, uh, a sporting goods store, along with several restaurants, and then some local mom and pop types shops. The center's completely closed. Uh, in terms, every store is closed. Um, there, there's really no essential businesses operating out of these out of the center, so they're they're required to be closed. So there's no income at all at the property. And the large tenants, the big box tenants, Bed Bath & Beyond, TJ Maxx, they're all on a nationwide basis taking the attitude of we're just not paying rent. And whether it falls under, some of them are saying, hey, the lease requires the property to be open and operating and it's not, so we don't have to pay rent. Or they're looking to specific clauses in the lease like force majeure, which I don't want to get too much into that, but um, that allows under certain cir circumstances the tenant to not abide by all of the lease terms. So it's put the owners in a, in a real crunch. So they're coming back to the lender to ask for some relief. And so I'm getting a lot of requests for a certain number of months of interest only payments or a certain number of months of forbearance, meaning we, we can't make a payment for three months until these tenants reopen and start paying. And so from the life company side, they're pushing back a little bit saying, you know, look, uh, on this one particular property, it's, it's like a 40% loan to value. This property was cash flowing millions while it was open. Now it's cash flowing nothing. But the life companies are taking a little different approach because they don't have the flexibility that a bank would have or the federal government giving them the ability to work some of these deals out without really a cost to the bank. So we're kind of caught in the middle of all that, trying to navigate those territories. And, and, and honestly, I probably have in our servicing portfolio really only a handful of loans so far where the borrower has asked for some help. But I know on a, on a nationwide basis, that number is, is growing. Um, and so I think we're fortunate where we're located in Nashville and in the, in the Southeast. And I'm not sure why that is. I think a lot of our loans are structured where they're not highly leveraged loans. So it's, it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. But I don't foresee, you know, a large amount of foreclosures, uh, especially, you know, at least not on the life insurance company side. So I think that's the key question, right? You know, what people are wondering, will there be foreclosures given, you know, this dynamic, right? And, and if we move beyond life companies and, and the Southeast and just talk about this more broadly, how do you personally feel about the situation? Is it likely that, you know, a bank says, well, you know, we underwrite risk and even though we didn't account for this pandemic, it's still, you know, our right as the first lien lender on, um, you know, one of these properties to foreclose uh, if we want to. You know, there are obviously practical challenges that come with that. You know, are we going to kick out all of these big box retailers and find new ones in the current environment? Absolutely not, right? And so there's a bit of a practical discussion to this as well, as opposed to just what are your rights per the, the legal agreement that is a lease? And so, 
yeah, we'd just like to get here some of uh, your thoughts on, on that dynamic and how you think this will actually play out in practice. Well, that's a great question. I think that there's a lot of ways to break that down. I think one, if we're specifically talking about, let's talk about some, some classes of properties. So retail and, and hotels are probably the two hardest hit by this pandemic and store closures. So from the retail standpoint, what's interesting about this is retail in general has, has not been a favored product just because of Amazon and you know, the internet and just in general, these big box retailers, I think this, this was probably coming down the pipe, whether it was a year from now or five years from now. So this event really accelerated that. So I think the retail side of, of commercial real estate that landscape is going to really change uh, going forward. And I'm not really sure who's in the driver's seat. I think we're going to find in a lot of cases, the tenants are going to be in the driver's seat here uh, because they can really squeeze the landlord. But I think I, I have a couple of borrowers that told me when we get through this, we're, we're, we don't want to work with these big box retailers anymore because of the way they've treated us. And so we're going to try to retenant this. We're not going to renew their lease. We're not going to. So I think that group is probably in the minority. Um, but in terms of foreclosures, on the life company side, I don't think we're going to see a lot of that. I think that these deals will get worked out and restructured. It's interest, what's really interesting, the, the paradox here is in the, in the 2009 financial crisis, banks were brutal on their borrowers uh, because of the credit crunch and, and values real concerns about values and, and banks would go out where they were getting properties reappraised and the property was appraising below where it would provide the required debt service coverage um, or other metrics. They, would, they were making the borrower pay down the loan amount by that difference. And so they were really squeezing the borrowers. This time around, they've got the backing of the federal government right from the get-go and, uh, and loans today look a whole lot different, bank loans, than they did 10 years ago. They're not as highly leveraged. Um, they're structured a little differently. And, and bank loans, most of them have recourse. So they've got a little more flexibility. And so I don't think we're going to see a ton of that, aside from some retail properties and hotel properties. Um, I'm not sure how we get around, certainly, the hotel properties. I mean, look, we've got all these hotels that are basically closed. and when will, nobody knows when they're going to reopen. And even if they reopen in a couple months, I don't think they're going to fill up for a while because we're not seeing We're not going to see conferences come right back and we're not going to see travel as much. And so it could be, you know, 2021 till we really get back to a normal environment from a standpoint of hotels and um, not so sure what retail looks like. So multifamily properties, uh, again, I think you've got some backing from uh, the government on both sides, the, the tenants that are receiving some money, if they applied for it, that a lot of that money's running out, but stimulus checks, things like that. And then on the landlord side, uh, same thing. If they had a, a government loan like a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, they've got some relief on those loan uh, requirements and, and some forbearance relief. So I think it's going to be really a few months before we really know, before I can answer that question. I, I, if you ask me that question in three months, I think my answer is going to be a lot different depending on kind of what we see over the next three months. So, you know, I don't, I don't really know, Dan. It's, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of different things and I've never 
I've been through a lot of downturns. Uh, I've been in this business for 30, 33 years. And usually you have a majority kind of idea of which way this is heading. I, I'm hearing so many different things right now that it's really anybody's guess as to where we go from here. Um, and, and we're really not going to know until things get going again. Yeah, I was reading somewhere, and of course, everybody's got best guesses, and there's articles about everything, but that there was an expectation that travel wouldn't really normalize or really pick up for about 30 months was the last thing that I saw. And I think it was specifically related to airlines, potentially international travel. There might be some uh, some expectation of local travel, but to your point about hotels um, and the travel industry in general. I was also thinking about when it, speaking about hotels, I'm in LA, as you know, and I saw that in San Francisco, there was an ordinance passed for the city to rent 7,000 hotel rooms for the homeless population which I thought was really interesting that it was, and it was unanimously voted, and I'm, I can't remember what housing board voted this in for the homeless population. And then we've seen hotel uh, hotels maybe also being used for different kinds of shelter in place for people who are ill. There's like, there's a lot of different options for that. I've, of course, that varies across the country. There's been suggestions that student housing dorms be used for spare hospital beds. I mean, there's got to be some creative solutions to um, these issues, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that we will see a lot of creative sort of adaptive, short-term adaptive reuses of uh, hotel properties for for a lot of different you know I I love that idea about sheltering the homeless and figuring out how to pay you know compensate the hotel owner so they can continue to make their loan payments so you know it, it's really a pretty huge trickle down effect here because um, there's so many different you know parties involved you know lender to to the borrower um, what's interesting is you know this this the one property that I was describing earlier, the retail property, is actually owned by uh, the primary borrower owns a chain of movie theaters. And so his argument is, hey, look, I, you know, my theaters are shut down. I have no source of income there. And then he owns retail real, real estate and there's no income there. And so he's really getting squeezed in every direction. And uh, I don't see how the lender won't work work out a solution with him. And I really think they will. We haven't heard back yet, but we probably will in the next couple of days. And I think really the, the solution is just going to be an, an interest-only payment structure for um, you know, maybe three to six months until things get, get up and operating again. But there's so much equity ahead of him in this property that he's not going to let it, let it go no matter what. So now the flip side to that is Properties that are very, very highly leveraged, those are the ones that are at the highest risk of, of getting foreclosed on. Um, but, you know, most lenders, including banks, they don't want to foreclose on a property. So they're going to try to do whatever they can to avoid that. And I would say the majority of lenders are in that category. The, the one, the one uh, lender category that I'm most concerned about are, are CMBS loans, which are securitized loans that are highly leveraged and uh, 
I, I was on a conference call yesterday with a group that indicated that there were something like 10,000 active CMBS hotel loans in securitized portfolios right now. And they thought that 50% of those loans were going to a special servicer, meaning that there's, there's major issues with the property and, that have to get worked out. And normally, in those situations, the, the cash flow would go into a lockbox. They would sweep that cash flow to pay the debt service first, but there's no cash flow. So it's going to be really interesting to see how all of those uh, deals get resolved. It's, it's really interesting to hear you know, about how these existing loans, how, how lenders are dealing with existing loans that are having these, these issues. I'm also curious about what you think will happen on a going forward basis, whether it's you know, new loans uh, that you know, borrowers are, are looking to uh, obtain today and you know, the standards under which these lenders actually underwrite these deals. Um, there's obviously a lot that we don't know about you know, even the medium to long-term impact of you know, COVID-19, whether it's hotel or retail or you know, even multifamily. How are lenders looking at the changing world and incorporating those things into their underwriting for you know, loans today? You know, our assumption, of course, is that you know, the volume of loan requests has probably decreased you know, month over month, year over year. But you know, they will come back uh, eventually. And how are underwriters you know, kind of changing their, their standards? So it's too early to really tell right now. I can tell I'm working on several uh, loans right now, and, and I'm not seeing a huge difference with the exception of retail properties. Multifamily properties are still getting done. New, new multifamily properties that are, in not sta- that are not stabilized yet that are still in lease up. There's a little bit of caution there just in terms of what, what is that going to look like once we, we get through this? Um, and will they maintain the same flow of, of leasing that uh, prior to the pandemic? So in general, though, interest rates are still really low, historically low. And, and I think they're going to stay historically low for quite some time. Like, you know, I'm talking years. I, I don't see how they, they won't unless we get you know, some really major inflationary pressure, which I think we'll, we will. Of course, they said that in the last, in 2009, and we never really saw that. But I think this is, this is different. But from an, just from a strictly underwriting standpoint, Dan, I think that we're not going to see a huge difference right now until we, again, know more. Uh, you know, is, are we, is this going to be kind of a V-shaped recovery? Is it a U-shaped recovery? Are we talking about you know, years from now, the, the last thing I heard was a W-shaped recovery. So um, I'm running out of letters, I think, to describe the potential recovery. But underwriting is going to still maintain the same fundamentals, I think, in terms of debt service coverage. And um, leverage might be one thing where, where you won't see lenders pushing leverage as much. Um, but interest rates really are going to help that situation as well, because we're still seeing rates in the permanent market on the life company side and even on the bank side, uh, below 5%. And on the life company side, we're, you know, low fours in some circumstances, even below that. And I don't see that changing for quite some time. It's interesting, you know, debt is the largest component of the capital that kind of goes into, into any of these deals, right? And you look at some of these harder hit asset classes, whether it's hotel or retail, and 
it's really hard to foresee a world where you know revenues at those properties get anywhere near they were you know pre-COVID. In a lot of cases, we're talking about you know being cut by a substantial percentage, fifty percent or more. So I wonder, how does a retail deal get done? How does a hotel deal come together when you know revenues are projected at fifty percent of what they were? Uh, a few a few months ago, it's just not possible at those rates for for these deals to work. I don't think we're going to see on again on like on the retail and hotel front, we're not going to see a lot of new development there unless there's some other source of capital to finance that. Aside from the traditional banks or life companies or or CMBS lenders or even bridge lenders for the for the exact reason that you just described, because you know unless they've got tenants that are ready to open and paying rent, I don't see that happening. I think the whole landscape for, for that was changing anyway. You're not seeing the large, big box, new retail developments anyway, like we once did, that was slowing down. Um, I think the biggest changes we're gonna see along that front are gonna be in the leases, in, in new leases, because we're gonna have new clauses now because there's so much gray area behind what a tenant can do in the event of a pandemic, because we really haven't experienced this to this extent before. And so that, that's going to change the whole landscape on, on really every property type in terms of, of leases, but predominantly on the retail front. And then hotels, yeah, we're just not going to see new hotels. And the demand is not there. Uh, it's completely gone. Uh, and you've got all these hotels that have to basically start all over again. All the bookings, you know, convention bookings, have been canceled, weddings, anything like that, and just destination recreation trips to different cities where you're going to, you know, occupy hotels. So that, that you're, you're basically gone from the highest level. I mean, we, we saw the highest occupancy levels of hotels that we've probably historically ever seen prior to this COVID pandemic to, to really the lowest we've ever seen. And so how do we get back to where we were and will we ever get back? You know, I, I don't know. I think we will. I just, you know, the big question is how long is it going to take? Yeah, that's the thing, right? Even, um, even when you were saying like the, is it V-shaped? Is it U-shaped? Is it W-shaped? Uh, there's a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, if we have this virus sort of coming back in waves until there's a vaccine and until there's like antibody testing or what have you is that we could potentially be doing um, self-isolation every so often. And if, if there's self-isolation every so often or full shutdowns every so often, and of course all of this is conjecture, but you know, if that were to happen, that's also going to have an impact. So I think from an underwriting perspective, and, you know, which is all about mitigating risk and in life insurance too, trying to uh, predict <laughs> risk analytically. I think these sort of scenarios I think are fascinating. Um, I'm not a statistician, but like to take all of that into account when underwriting a deal and cash flow and risk is just next level of, um, you know, gazing into a crystal ball, but also coming up with like, what is the right number um, and what is the risk I'm willing to take? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think you really brought up a really important point. Until we have, uh, you know, better testing and a vaccine, really, until there's a vaccine, I think there's going to be a huge amount of uncertainty as to when we get back to normal. 
once we have a vaccine, then we have a solution, um, at least for this strain of, of the coronavirus. Uh, and, but, it, but it's going to be a, a huge step in getting back to running a normal economy. And, and, and who knows when that is? Is it three months from now or is it a year from now? I mean, I, you know, who knows? Yeah, it's hard to say. I'm curious because we've talked about hotel and retail. Uh, you mentioned you have some insights potentially on office. I think that is a very interesting uh, area, physical space, and also uh, just, just an area of life that is also, A, it's affected, but it's also going to be one of the ones to come back online probably before retail. Um, but space planning in offices is going to be a thing, you know, or desks going to be six feet apart. Like, you know, can you cramp all the people in the same areas before, especially like a co-working space? I mean, there's really interesting things around rotating workers over time, um, working from home and working in the office. I've read some really interesting things. It all goes back to we have to be creative about restarting somehow into this new normal. But what are some of the insights um, from, you know, maybe a more technical real estate or lending perspective that you're seeing in office properties? So, uh, you know, I, and again, I haven't seen a lot of activity there. I can tell you from a standpoint of our, our servicing portfolio and our whole q capital group across the country, we're not seeing a huge amount of, of issues with office properties in terms of requests for forbearance or things like that. There's been in certain properties, certain tenants like we're involved in, in one office building where one of the tenants happens to be a, a pretty large hotel developer. And so he's asked for some relief from rent because he has no cash flow right now um, in, in his hotels. So certain circumstances like that, you're going to see that, that happen. But overall, I think the office market is still pretty healthy. You bring up a couple of really interesting points, though. Co-working spaces. You know, what what is that going to look like going forward, uh, and and are they going to have to spread out? And and the same thing. There's been kind of this movement in office space in general for larger open co-working type spaces. Uh, and and will that continue? Will that trend continue, or will we see something you know move back towards separate offices, or you can actually close your door and be somewhat protected. I'm not sure. You know, and then and then it's, you know, does that really make a difference if you're in an office space with air circulating throughout the whole space? Does it does that make a difference? And nobody nobody really has the answer to that yet and on how this will will spread, you know, in terms of of a virus spreading through an office environment. Yeah, or those plexiglass dividers that I see going up in uh, grocery stores for example, they're starting to have like plexiglass Um, or uh, in Asia, they have plexiglass on, um, like larger eating tables and food halls where people can still sit and eat, but there's this plexiglass situation going on. But it, it is, it's interesting to think about how we adapt to an environment where we can't have the same kind of density as before. And this idea of like rotating, working from home a little bit, like one group works from home while the other group works in the office and vice versa. And just like, there's so much. And also contactless. Um, I've been reading a lot about companies, um, property owners trying to do as much as they can with contactless technology and just adding a lot more technology to take out a bit of a, of a human element. 
have you seen any of that or is that anything that would you think plays a role in risk mitigation or just looking at the way a property um, positions itself to work with people in this new normal? Well, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I think that those are questions that are going to get asked by a lender to a borrower on how they propose to deal with all this. Uh, and it is all new, but I think it does factor into the underwriting, even though it's not, you know, monetarily have a direct effect on the underwriting. Uh, it could have an effect on the operation of the property overall and the success of a property. So I think we're going to, you know, we're going to see those questions asked more often than not. And I think people are just navigating this whole new territory of dealing with issues like this because we've never seen anything like this to this extent before. So they're all good questions out of PI. I just don't know, you know, how, how they're going to be received. Um, and, and, and today, I'm not seeing a huge shift in underwriting on properties. And lenders are still lending, still looking at deals. But that doesn't mean in two weeks that we're going to see a sudden shift. So we'll have to revisit that if that's the case and, and see how that matches up to what we talked about today because who knows uh, what's, what, what could be coming down the road. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic overall in terms of the real estate landscape. I think when, when people get out again and, and the economy starts rolling again, you know, the, the fundamentals are, are still there, I think. Um, it's just getting everything started again is going to take some time. Uh, but I think there's still opportunities. I think there's still room for uh, growth in a lot of places, especially in the, uh, in the multifamily front, as long as jobs, you know, come back. But, you know, th those are probably the, the three big property types, the, the retail hotel and multifamily. Then the multifamily seem to be weathering the storm uh, better than expected right now. Most of my multifamily owners are kind of reporting that they're seeing anywhere from about 10 to 25% of the tenants that are asking for some sort of relief, which is um, a pretty good sign, I think, because I, I would have expected that to be maybe a higher amount. So, and I don't know what it looks like in different parts of the country. I'm just kind of focused on Nashville and the Southeast. So it'll be interesting to tell. I, I think it's still too early to tell. Um, I think when May 1st rolls around and rent is due again, uh, that it's going to be much more telling in terms of uh, what, the, what that looks like on the multifamily front. Talking about being opportunistic, let's chat a little bit about distressed investing. So you mentioned earlier that you know, lenders don't want to foreclose on borrowers. You know, they'd much rather prefer to work things out. But in this current environment, uh, because this pandemic, you know, it basically affects everyone as opposed to, you know, a specific retailer or hotel, for example, you're going to have distressed investors coming in, I assume, you know, offering to uh, buy these loans uh, off the balance sheet of the lenders, uh, you know, probably at, you know, some discount to, you know, the actual uh, value of that loan. But when presented with that option, uh, and an uncertain future, specifically in hospitality and retail, my guess is that you know, lenders may be uh, more likely to kind of sell off these loans to folks who are willing to foreclose uh, and who want to uh, you know, effectively take over a facility at a fraction of the cost. And so what do you think 
you know, is going to happen in that environment. It'd just be interesting to hear your your thoughts and, and kind of commentary on distressed investing and, you know, the likelihood that we'll see it. Um, you know, we saw it, uh, you know, following 2008 uh, in, in different ways, but just curious what you'd expect to see today. Yeah, I, I, again, too early to tell, but I think if we head in that direction, there will be some opportunities, which depending on which side of the table you're, you're on, it's an opportunity. But it's just a matter of how long these lenders are going to stick with, with the uh, property. Uh, they, they don't want to have to write that off as a loss either. Uh, and I think some of these highly leveraged properties, I think we are going to see some of that. Um, and, and I think from a standpoint, I think we're going to see some pretty savvy multifamily developers look at maybe converting hotels to uh, multifamily. Uh, and so I think there we're going to see some opportunities and uh, maybe some aggressive developers that are going to try to try to buy these loans from the bank or work something out with the property owner. Uh, so that's a real possibility, Dan. And I, and I think that it's, it's probably coming. I just, again, who knows what that's going to look like. Uh, I think it's still too early to tell because if things start, do start kind of reopening and coming back in the next few months, I don't think we're going to see a whole lot of that. If this goes on through the end of the year, I think we are going to see a lot of that. And that's going to be the big tipping point is, is to whether, you know, come, come July or August, things haven't changed a whole lot and improved much, then uh, I think we're going to really see some, we're, we're going to be having a, a conversation about this that's going to be much more in depth and we're going to see, be able to show some real examples of where this is occurring. I don't know that I really have any other questions. Um, I have all kinds of ideas about what I think retail could turn into, like schools. Um, <laughs> That's a great, I mean, a great idea. What else are you going to do with that land and those buildings? And um, I mean, maybe we can, as a society, refocus on education and healthcare, both from a physical land and building perspective and from a jobs perspective. I mean, you could have millions of, of jobs for people taking care of those in need and educating uh, future generations. I think that's like a great resource allocation, but I'm not in charge. Um, but this is interesting to think creatively. I think the real estate industry has always been very resilient and has a lot of very good creative um, and good hearted people. So yeah, so it'd be interesting to see what happens with with everything on a going forward basis. I, you know, one thing that it's a little bit off topic somewhat, because I, I had a discussion with a real estate appraiser yesterday uh, in terms of cap rates and, and value going forward, because I feel like I'm in the twilight zone a little bit because treasury yields are down, uh, interest rates are, are really low, which, which you would think in a, in, prior to this pandemic would, would cause cap rates to even compress further. Now, there's no real data uh, because there hasn't been many transactions since this started. Rates are even lower than, than where they were. We're really not in a liquidity crisis, I don't think. And, and yet, this, this appraiser told me that across the board, he's increasing cap rates on appraisals by at least a quarter of a, of a point, just to factor in the unknown of this whole pandemic. And which, which I find strange because it, it, it seems like it should go the other way. I, I understand 
that there's inherent risk of how these properties are going to perform. And so you have to take it down to, you know, of course, if it's a retail property or a hotel, I get it. So that that's going to be a real interesting dynamic over the next few months to see um, kind of which way that goes and, and how this whole um, pandemic will affect property values in, in the, um, in the, in the short term for sure, but I'm not sure what kind of long-term effect that that has over the next couple of years. That's a really interesting discussion topic for me personally, as we think about the different stakeholders here and you know who's ultimately responsible for paying the costs that all of this creates, whether it's you know loss of value at the property level or, or what have you. And if we kind of think about what's happening you know, let's take a multifamily, for example, you have a lot of hardworking Americans that, you know, are losing jobs through no fault of their own. And, you know, then they're put into a dynamic where, you know, they may not be able to pay rent. And the question really is, well, is that on them? Um, Or do we then push it to the landlord and say, well, the landlords were still responsible, uh, you know, for paying their lenders, right? And then we kind of take it another layer back and we say, well, you know, the lenders, uh, well, who's supporting them? And you take a group like Bank of America, for example, right? They reported, you know, losses uh, a couple days ago uh, that were pretty substantial. And uh, I think it was something like three and a half billion of which was attributable to loan losses. And so now we say, well, is it equity stock market investors who uh, should be feeling the, the brunt of that, right? They're speculators. They, in theory, have capital and they understand the risks and and then we have this bigger stimulus, you know, package coming into play from the government. And, you know, I think something, something that gets lost in that is that we as taxpayers are ultimately paying that in one way or another. It's not, you know, free money in the way that I think a lot of people uh, may think that it is. And so really the question is, who, who should be responsible for all of this? How does this all get, the, how does the cost of this pandemic get allocated across all the different stakeholders in this you know, very uh, broad and elaborate ecosystem that, that we've created? I, I don't have an answer. I mean, I, I, my, the best answer I can give you is I, I have no idea. Um, it, it's a great question, Dan. I think everybody's asking that question. And, and the massive amount of, of debt that not only the U.S. is taking on, but every country in the world is, is saving their economy. And, uh, you know, what does that look like in a few years, aside from the most obvious answer of, of massive inflation, um, which I, I'm not convinced that's going to happen. So, you know, we, we could find ourselves in a, in a, I don't want to say worse situation, but in a, in a different financial situation down the road, trying to figure all that out. But ultimately, the, you know, back to the value question is, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm too um, uh, optimistic about it, but I, I think ultimately we're going to get back to where we were um, and still have to deal with, these, with this massive amount of debt that, that went into the world's economy. But from, a, from an individual property standpoint, and maybe where cap rates are heading, barring any huge movement in interest rates upward, which I don't think we're going to see, you would think that we should be at least at a minimum kind of at a level, a level basis, maybe slightly lower values. Um, just because of the short-term economic impact that this has had on properties, again, depending on property type. But overall, I would hope that uh, 
we're in a pretty good position. And I think there will be plenty of opportunities out there for, for investors. You know, I just don't know where those opportunities are, are going to fall, but I think we're going to, we're going to see maybe some, some owners that, that were in transition properties get out. And so there may be some opportunities there for some repositioning of properties. Uh, but again, who, who knows where we're, where we're headed with this. I guess the best we can do is what we're doing now, which is, you know, day by day, take it day by day, stay informed and watch things and just try to try to do our best to make sense of what's going on and to position ourselves for when those opportunities come into the market. Like, um, like at Alpha, as you know, we're not doing any deals right now. We're looking at a lot of them. We're keeping ourselves very busy. There's all kinds of uh, potential opportunities, none that really fit our box, but you know, we're creating more content. We're trying to put information out there for investors to understand, even just from our perspective, what's going on. And I think um, even for me, that's really helpful. Sometimes a little overwhelming if we go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> like Dan's question, my head just started to go in these, like, you know, the, the concentric circle, right? If you take it out, spiral out, 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 how far out does it go? And then at a certain point, my head just explodes. It's too much. Um, so, you know, barring that, um, this staying informed and educated, and I also think rational and unemotional, it's very easy to become emotional with what's going on. But anyway, that's just a long way of saying that the best we can do right now is um, to stay informed about what's going on. And I uh, really appreciate your insights with um, what you're seeing on a daily basis. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. And I, um, I appreciate the time with you guys. And hopefully we'll revisit uh, this topic again and maybe have, have some more information down the road. And hopefully it's, it's positive. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>